welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, Al Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of Al Monitor, and our guest today is Sam Bladis, CEO of the MENA Catalysts, a premier brand government relations firm winning market access for technology multinationals in the Gulf, raising their profile in the Gulf's halls of power, and explaining the Middle East to Silicon Valley. As multinationals look across the globe for the next big thing in 2021, the largest growth narrative of a generation resides in a region that many think is heavily beset with political risk belying the skyrocketing potential of the region's digital economy. That potential, as Sam will explain, may have in fact expanded as a result of the COVID pandemic. Technology is altering the fundamentals of how we think about the region, spawning tectonic spending shifts from sook to e-sook, disrupting every industry including oil, retail, transport, and financial services. And we're really only at the beginning of the beginning. Technology in the Gulf is quickly becoming a value driver, and wealth creator, with a commitment to investments in a knowledge economy, including science and education. Technology is also a key differentiator in the Middle East, the other side of the story in the region, where tech have-nots include those countries which face conflict and uncertainty, such as the wars in Yemen, Syria, and Libya, and those countries affected by these seemingly endemic humanitarian crises. Our guest today, Sam Bladis, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and now lives between Dubai and Riyadh. So he is personally and professionally a cultural and entrepreneurial bridge between Silicon Valley and the Gulf. Sam is the former head of Gulf government relations for Google, and he is an authoritative Middle East public policy leader. He was at the table with deputy ministers in the region, helping them draft the MENA high-tech legislation that continues to shape the Gulf's high-tech sectors. Sam studied Arabic and Chinese for five years each. And as I mentioned at the start, he is now CEO of the MENA Catalyst, the preeminent government relations firm for high-tech companies in the Middle East. My conversation with Sam Bladis begins now. Sam, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. Sam, I think it would be fair to say that over the past decade or so, you have been among the very top thought and business leaders and champions of the potential for the Gulf and the digital economy. And you have worked with Gulf leaders to shape that potential and, and make it a reality. Now, let's start with the why now question. Does that potential hold up today? given the impact of COVID-19 and low oil prices on the Gulf economies? Yes, it's a two-level game. One is, and hopefully, by the way, this will kind of be your GPS scene setter 
to quickly get up to speed on on what's happening in this kind of in the the key factors addressing your question. All right. So part A is that you have so many uh, offline analog industries that have been decimated by by COVID. At the same time, um, the virus has fostered um, fertile soil for the digital economy to kind of catapult forward several years into the future in a very short time span. And essentially the virus has created this kind of captive audience in certain ways and kind of compelled both companies uh, and governments, as well as actually the, the wider public to um, rapidly scale up their, their tech adoption. Um, and at the same time, I guess on the, the other side of the equation is that coincidentally or not, but China, India, the United States, are all tightening their grip or there's growing calls to tighten their grip on tech companies. And the Middle East has this moment where, I mean, belying kind of the political risks you see on splashed across the front pages and newspapers um, around the world about this region, there is this booming non-oil growth industry um, that resides in the tech sector, um, which we can talk more about. But um, yes, I mean, it, it's it's definitely alive and well, the tech sector. I mean, yeah, the prize is quite significant. You have over 220 million users that bigger than the population of Brazil, a brick country, over 90 million smartphones were imported into the Middle East. Um, in the last 18 months. That's more than went to UK and France combined. And simply put, if you look at the geometry of booming kind of social media demand married with the rapidly expanding youth demographic, um, there's a compelling narrative, I think, that has not really attracted a lot of attention yet. Sam, you laid out the potential. It's fascinating you mentioned this as even more so in the post-COVID-19 uh, economy. And we'll want to get more into that. And, and let me ask you just to, to develop these thoughts a little further. Talk more and go a little deeper on the risk and challenges for GCC governance, governments at this point in the digital economy and high-tech sectors. Coming off this last year, there's low oil prices, COVID, declining investment. Why not fall back to what you know and have in abundance, which is oil. I can imagine Asian African consumers will need more. Tell us a little more about the risk, the challenges and how the Gulf states themselves are, are weighing them. Yes, so on your last part about how they're weighing them, look, they say you wanna understand, one wise sheikh in Abu Dhabi um, a member of the royal family once explained to me, you want to understand why tech goes to the beating heart of what we're working on now, and it's not PR whatsoever, is you got to rewind the tape and look at the first half of the 
20th century when our economy was also then a one product export led growth economy in the form of pearls. And because of an innovation half a world away in Japan with the rise of cultured pearls, their economy was rendered obsolete almost overnight. And some of the leaders back then vowed, including Sheikh Zayed, that that would, that would never happen, we would never let that happen again. And so they have realized um, over time that in Abu Dhabi and in a number of, of Gulf capitals that tech has shifted from being a vertical of the Gulf economies uh, to a horizontal enabler of every part of their economies from pick your topic, from transportation to education, including oil, which is being rapidly disrupted by technology in a range of ways we could discuss. Sam, this is an up close and personal question. You live there in the region. You've been involved living there, working there for just about a decade. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know everybody who's anyone in the Gulf, especially on, in these high-tech sectors and then the leadership of the countries dealing with those sectors. What is it that you have seen over this past decade and has played out in the business and economic culture of the region that has made these countries, again, known for oil, uh, such successes in high tech? And who were the, the champions and trendsetters when you came to the region uh, that helped shape these trends? Great question. They say, you know, the difference between a good question and a great question is a great question is one you, you have the answer to. Um, <laughs> and uh, Excellent. So I'd say number one, so also, by the way, yeah, unfortunately, I wish it was only 10 years out here. I've been working in and out of, of the Gulf for actually the better part of 20 years. Um, wow. And uh, the key point I think I'd say is that, you know, the region for a long time was kind of divided into that you had republics and you had monarchs and, or monarchies. And um, that is, at least when it comes to tech companies and where they're, which one, which countries have been successful in attracting more than others, it, you could break it down in terms of countries that Western tech businesses can successfully operate in in a stable environment and which ones they cannot. Ones they cannot might include, or that it's been very challenging might include Syria, Yemen, um, uh, Libya, arguably in certain ways. One thing I think that has, has stood out is in terms of also, you know, who are the champions? You know, in my universe, the way we look at the Middle East today, especially, is um, we think about tipping countries and beacon countries mm. and or tipping governments and beacon governments. Beacon ones means uh, governments that are kind of, can be a model in certain ways for others that others do actively, whether maybe they don't admit it, but they do um, look to scale and replicate some of their successes. That might include um, Dubai in certain ways. Um, for instance, 
Dubai is arguably 20 to 30 years into the future of their neighbors to their east or to their south or to their north and or to their west in certain ways. And I think that the, the vision that they had, I mean, arguably no, no government is perfect, but um, they have adopted some world-class grandmaster multitasking skills in attracting uh, tech companies in a way that I have not seen most other governments in the region. They were very strategic in Dubai in um, attracting the regional headquarters of, of uh, they call them the big six media agencies that are off mostly from um, the States and Western Europe. And these media agencies actually coordinate 80 or 90% of the ad spend of most of the Fortune 500 companies out there. And they might form you know, a third to 40% of the, the revenue of a lot of the largest um, internet advertising companies um, that everybody knows on the streets of Washington to, to Dubai. And so when you have your largest customers 100 yards down the street from you, that creates a very powerful um, value proposition and, and creates a certain stickiness. So as long as you're, if you have your largest paying customers in your same neighborhood or down the street from you, other countries can try to attract you in the Middle East. Um, but I think that kind of creates a winning combination. I think the idea that Dubai a long time ago set up an internet city that is now fully leased up, they're actually doubling it in size to the tune of 10 Manhattan city blocks. Um, and uh, they've already created the region's um, only um, unicorns and acquisitions by brand name American tech companies in the form of, of Amazon acquiring um, regional e-commerce player soup for $560 million a few years back. And then uh, Uber acquiring um, ride hailing company Kareem uh, shortly after to the tune of $3.1 billion. I think, I mean, things kind of work here and they, they sort of crack the code in figuring out hear how globalization and the Middle East are, are not mutually exclusive. And um, I mean, it's stunning. This, this city, Dubai, for all of its um, challenges, I mean, the place has, has been quite successful in importing grains. And for a lot of people that cannot get a, a work visa to go to the UK or, or the States or Canada, um, this place has been quite effective in importing a lot of the best and brightest from the region. And it, it kind of shows the other side of the Middle East. There's so many things to be bearish and down about in the politics in the broader region. But some of the young entrepreneurs here, you see them creating 50, 100, 200 jobs just on their internet businesses alone, creating arguably more jobs than some ministries in other parts of the, of the region. Um, it's kind of inspiring stuff. Sam, let's talk a little about these multinational tech firms you've been working with. 
Many have larger market caps than the whole Gulf GDP. How does that play out when these companies come to the region? Uh, they are, in a sense, uh, economically more powerful than some countries. Are the rules of the game for them changing in the Gulf with waves of new risks, new laws, but also the financial growth and potential you're talking about? What are the challenges they face and what are the opportunities uh, they should be pursuing? First of all, um, a number of, I, I would argue that the, the Middle East is kind of like a hidden gem uh, to, to many of them. In other words, it's hard to see the region from Silicon Valley because often um, as the case with many sectors, um, the Middle East might report into Europe and Europe might report to the headquarters in Asia or, or the States. And um, I think so lack of knowledge, lack of relationships um, was historically a challenge. Um, I would argue that um, key challenges today have been um, showing companies that an approach of kind of let's stay in the ivory tower, let's keep our powder dry and let's not interact with government because you don't want to attract unwanted attention. I understand that mentality. It's, it reminds me a little bit of my two-year-old daughter who, if she's scared of something, might put a blanket over her in the hopes that it might go away or that she can ignore it. Um, but in reality, I think companies... That are the, um, that are leading um, in the region and winning in Middle Eastern markets are ones that acknowledge that hey, if we're a global company that and we want to operate successfully in emerging markets, that means this is a contact sport. We got to roll up our sleeves, adapt and adjust. And this is a region that's very hard to do business with um, by remote control. And you've got to. Um, kind of work with people eyeball to eyeball here and physically come here. I think some of the biggest um, challenges sometimes for companies has been, they might think that they are in the tech business, but they're not. They're actually in the relationship business. And, you know, government relations is, is kind of, that's the team that, um, wins the, the market access, obtains the licenses, um, strips the, the regulatory barriers. And I think they're the ones that a lot of tech companies, I think, have um, are only beginning now to realize that working in the Middle East, I mean, relationships and politics are kind of the, the coin of the realm um, out here. Um, I think what's changed is that there's tectonic plates moving beneath their feet. Um, the ecosystem is fundamentally altering. What I mean by that in brief is just the rise of cybercrime, political speech, um, and uh, adult content have kind of brought into sharp focus uh, for government policymakers that offline laws developed decades ago become kind of inadequate in the online world. And therefore they are, government leaders are, are kind of bringing, if you can imagine every economic, commercial, cultural, political law 
from the offline world to the online one. And so because of that, um, yes, I mean, there are really compelling economic growth stories out here. Um, I talked a little bit about them at the top, but also um, I guess there's maybe a, a, a palpable concern that if that from from some tech companies that um, some governments or some markets in the Middle East might kind of close up uh, before the companies get a chance to to physically get there and have an inclusive, disciplined kind of um, government engagement um, approach. If that if that makes sense. So these countries are not waiting, right? If the Middle East, unlike defense and oil or um, aircraft manufacturing, the Middle East has not historically been a top priority um, for the tech companies. Um, until, until recently, we've seen some major shifts of tech companies expanding here, which I can talk about. But go ahead. Sam, you raise an important lesson that I think a lot of um, young people who are approaching the region or any region uh, in business or academia or any profession, which is that even with the rise of the high tech sector, relationships matter. They matter in the Middle East. Uh, they matter when you do business. You're talking about high stakes, high reward, sometimes high risk endeavors, and you want to know who you're working with. And people want to see each other and want to know each other. It's not just uh, just about engaging on email or perhaps even Zoom uh, when things come back. It's 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 good to be there. It's interesting because on paper, people might think that there's like the two worlds of of Silicon Valley and the petro monarchies of the Gulf could not be more different. The the mentalities and the, the values and, and whatnot. But, you know, explaining the People's Republic of Northern California, as I call it, um, to, to the Gulf countries is interesting because there's actually, okay, yes, there are certain issues that the two, that the two will never, may never agree on. But there's a lot they do, surprisingly. For instance, on... Um, ISIS on on uh, combating kidnappings, uh, suicide watches, um, on the issue of education, um, building up the tech talent pipeline out here. Um, they all have an interest, tech companies and Gulf countries alike, in helping Gulf states pivot slowly away from a monolithic hydrocarbon culture. There's also a lot of people may not realize a confidence among Gulf leaders in technology that's much closer to Silicon Valley's way of thinking than Europe's is to the Valley. In Europe, there's a great fear of technology, um, killing jobs, perhaps. Um, in the Gulf, um, they kind of welcome that in certain ways. If there's a way to alleviate heavy dependence um, in the long term on on foreigners, one one. Um, um, cabinet member um, in the UAE, whose name I, um, I'll, I'll protect, said that, you know, you know how many people, Sam, it takes to build a skyscraper in Japan versus Abu Dhabi? And I said, how, how many? And he said, well, in Japan, once the initial startup's done, it's 
about 80 to 90 people actually, because they have such a skilled workforce um, with a, particularly a tech savvy one. You know how many people on average it takes to build a skyscraper in the UAE? North of two and a half to 3,000. And um, anyway, so every year the, the Gulf, the GCC countries actually remit out over $100 billion um, in remittances. To put that in context, it's about roughly 7% of the GDP of the GCC. And uh, so anyway, if there are ways to retain some of that capital and not use as many workers and do things in a more efficient way, I mean, it's, it's interesting just how the Gulf is actually more similar to the Silicon Valley than maybe Europe might be. And you are uh, unusually positioned because you grew up in the Bay Area. So you didn't just uh, get involved with uh, Silicon Valley, as it were, uh, in terms of your career choices, but you really know the area and know that culture as well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's we've been there over 100 years, long before it was called Silicon Valley, when it used to be called the Valley of the Heart's Delight because of the fruit orchards, and the apple orchards. And we saw it go from kind of... Um, from uh, fruit farms into garages and from garages into office parks from boom to bust to boom again. And yeah, and now we see a lot of similar strains beginning to emerge actually in the Gulf and in, in UAE, in Dubai, they, they have over 200 nationalities. You know, this country here is younger than Matt Damon. Um, geographically, it's only the size of Maine. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I can't. It's hard for me to think of another government in the U.S. and the private sector is different, but I can't. It's hard to think of another government that is is thinking so far into the future as as this one here. I mean, they have a 2071 plan, right? They all have their 2030 plans, and at the core of every one of these plans, I'm sure you've glanced at some of these. Um, if you had to boil it down to one sentence, no minister, nobody's disagreed with me when I've said this. Um, the purpose of all these plans is to build a knowledge economy. Um, so I think, I mean, that, I, I, I'm not aware of a lot of governments actually delivering against those kind of priorities, personally. Um, Sam, you, met, you mentioned er earlier that you saw governments in the region as, as beacons or, or tipping types of governments. Right. Let me ask you, so every day uh, here at O-Monitor and other media organizations, other think tanks, those who do U.S. policy, even, even business leaders, all of us who look at the Middle East, uh, we see the potential in the Gulf and we also see the challenges the region face, uh, challenges, I should say, they face, which seem at times quite immense. Uh, if you look in the Gulf, the Yemen is a country of what, 24 million people. Sometimes when I just give that statistic to start discussing Yemen, which the UN is called the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world, uh, it seems daunting. Big country right there in the Gulf uh, was a a state that one might have classified as a, a failing or potentially failing state even before the war happened and the haven for 
Al-Qaeda-based groups. That's there in the Gulf. It's something when the war ends that uh, those the countries of the region will probably have to work toward to, to help Yemen come back together and achieve some stability and prosperity. When I started in the region, I'm older than you. Uh, you couldn't go to the Gulf or anywhere without having a conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian issue and uh, the political currents in the region. Help us understand how that fits, what you're describing and the potential, this commitment to the knowledge economy with these other challenges of you know, economic development, um, conflict, post-conflict stability, um, and uh, economic uncertainty in the number of, of key areas in the region. The Arab world is fragmenting, right? It was, I mean, at least from my perspective, and I can't talk about it from um, anyone else's, but at least from the, the, the tech uh, view of, of what you're talking about, right? We, in the region, we used to have monarchs and republics and fast forward, um, to modern time, it's about stable versus unstable, um, and the ones you can do business in, and the ones you can't. Um, the uh, it's interesting, or it's it's really unfortunate in certain ways um, how technology is sometimes used well, but often uh, is 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 abused as well in places. Um, like Yemen, abused financially. They have extremely high internet costs there. Um, and uh, in many poor, um, uh, less developed countries, the um, internet prices are much higher. And, and that limits a lot of things, right? Because it's almost like a public utility in certain ways. It's the way people communicate, educate, entertain, et cetera. Um, and uh, I think what are what are, I mean? What I'd say is, I mean, it's when I talk about how tech is sometimes abused. I mean, a knife, right, can also be it can be used for cutting your steak, or it can be used for cutting someone's uh, throat. Um, one man's curmudgeon is another man's um, a walking stick, right, and. Um, and it's really concerning sometimes seeing how um, tech has sometimes become just as much a tool for uh, surveillance, for spreading of, of propaganda um, as it has been for um, creating a whole universe of new jobs. I mean, for all the talk of, of, of um, kind of globalization leading to kind of exacerbating a lot of inequalities, including in the Middle East, and that contributing to uh, unemployment, contributing to um, instability. It's interesting that um, actually, I mean, the rise of the app economy. So since 2007, um, with the introduction of the iPhone, I mean, we have seen including in the Middle East, a lot of the benefits of this, the, the rise of a hundred billion dollar app economy um, that has created so many jobs with, uh, for uh, develop, software developers, um, to technicians, to um, IT design architects, and it can go on. But, um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's really, it's unfortunate too. I mean, how, I mean, as, as the internet kind of evolved into the public square, how um, governments have used it in certain ways, reminiscent of how they used to um, um, surveil, dominate the, the offline analog square as well. No, and another, I'm talking about places like Yemen, Libya, Syria, to be specific. Right, of course. You know, another area where um, uh, the evolution of the digital economy and, and our industry here in media and, and podcasts in particular uh, has been a, a good news story is it, it, allowed the youth in the region to have uh, conversations about other issues that affect them and that show their connectivity to other areas and, and cultures, both within the Arab world and beyond. This opens up a space for that cohort to engage what's on their mind well beyond the political conversations, which we're all accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, there's a lot of, of very powerful narratives of how, I mean, of how tech can be disrupting um, education. And frankly, if we wanna guard the region's long-term economic security from kind of narrow dependence, fragile dependence on oil-based revenue, then um, yeah, arming and equipping kids with um, digital skills seems like not a silver bullet, but certainly a um, one tool in the arsenal. I mean, one thing that I was very involved with at Google um, and I'm still involved is um, some strategies and campaigns to make um, coding and programming as popular as reading, writing, English, and math and putting it into the curriculum of every um, elementary school, every public and private, um, in a growing number of Gulf countries. Excellent initiative. Sam, is the U.S. still the partner of choice for the Gulf countries in dealing with the future? And put it in the context of the competition, uh, the extent of the competition that the U.S. faces with Russia and China in the region. So the short answer is Yes, but maybe not in the ways that seem apparent from the surface. Um, Russia's role in the tech sector has been the most limited of, of the three countries you mentioned. Um, China's has been the most, has seen the biggest shifts. Um, so let me explain. Uh, Frankly, rewind the tape in Gulf history 20 years ago um, when I first started researching uh, Gulf China ties and uh, did a Fulbright out here on that. And there was there were a lot of negative perceptions about the quality of Chinese uh, products and services. And if there was one sector that the U.S. Um, had a kind of a, a differentiator over a comparative advantage over the other two you mentioned, you could argue it was in technology in certain ways. I mean, maybe when it came to 
aviation, in certain ways you could argue Airbus and, and um, there are certain European players in oil, you could argue there are certain European countries and same in defense. But when it came to consumer technology, that was an area that was kind of uniquely American um, and, and quite there's a quite a compelling story there. Um, what's happened is in the last five years, American tech companies have in many domains um, actually been surpassed by their Chinese counterparts. Um, so like five, six years ago, the highest revenue generating apps were arguably uh, like, Facebook, um, Twitter, WhatsApp, um, not WhatsApp, but um, in certain ways, Instagram. And today, if in country after country, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, Oman, Egypt, it's almost, I don't know, I mean, four of the top five highest revenue generating apps in, in each of these places are Asian, and mostly Chinese. Um, and uh, so that was kind of a shift. And um, part of it, the reason is because, I mean, there's a perception right or wrong, like Facebook is kind of used by an older demographic. I mean, that's where, you know, if you're a teenager, folks, there might be a perception, like, oh, that's where my, my parents go or my grandparents are, right? And so teenagers will naturally um, kind of migrate away from where they're, from the prying eyes of their parents, right, or grandparents, and um, frankly, these Chinese apps are kind of—they understand what the Middle East is today. It's majority young people, and um, they just kind of laser focus on that youth demographic, and um, so that's part of it. And they are kind of meeting the audience where they are. So, I mean. There are a number of Chinese tech companies and like they might do almost all of their marketing through, for instance, WhatsApp or through another app um, rather than through offline, you know, big billboards or through uh, TV and radio ads, for instance. Um, look, the reason though the U.S. is arguably still the partner of choice, if you're talking about from the perspective of, of governments, um, when it comes to uh, helping transform large companies, you know, Aramco, they just did a huge deal with Google um, on, to provide cloud computing services. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, networks that kind of lay a lot of the, the digital infrastructure, the backbone of the tech sector in certain ways, um, the Scandinavians are big, Ericsson's uh, out of, out of uh, Sweden and Finland's Nokia um, networks. I mean, Huawei though is frankly um, increasingly the, the market leader for building networks, whether that's not necessarily, I mean, whatever your opinion is on that, that's, that's the reality. Um, and um, I think in the, I mean, let's see what happens in the future. Frankly, um, in terms of the geopolitics, what you're talking about, look, uh, the let's let's look a few years into the future. In another part of the world where China Chinese companies have surpassed their American 
counterparts um, by a range of metrics. Southeast Asia, right? There's more, there's more flights, there's more trade, there's uh, much larger Chinese cultural presence in Southeast Asia. Those countries still all look, I think, not all, but many of them, the vast preponderance of them still look to the US uh, for military support, leadership, guidance, um, direction. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, the Gulf has exported more oil to Asia than America, but uh, arguably, I mean, of the three major countries you mentioned, Russia, China, and the US, China is today still kind of a, a marginal player and a dependent player in political terms in, in the Gulf. And there's a range of tangible examples of that from um, their reticent minimal role in the 91 Kuwait Liberation War, the 2003 Iraq War, um, pulling a U-turn, um, voting for sanctions against their longtime oil supplier in Iran in 2005. I could, I could there's a litany of examples. Um, and Russia has not been, yes, they, I, they have set up uh, some, a digital center of innovation in Dubai. They, um, they, Yandex has expanded or made um, efforts to expand um, its uh, digital payments into Saudi Arabia. But for the most part, um, it's been the American and the Chinese companies that are are leading the, the charge. I'd say for the big strategic projects at the bottom line is it's been American um, companies in a lot of areas with the exception of Huawei. When it comes to the hearts and minds and um, market share in, uh, among consumers and the public and the vast majority of people in the Gulf, it's definitely the Chinese companies have moved light years ahead of of certainly their Russian counterparts and increasingly gain, gain, rapidly gaining ground on their American counterparts. Sam, last question is about the way ahead. You're now the CEO of MENA Catalysts. What are the next big trends you're watching to come into the Gulf government relations and for high-tech nationals? And what are your expectations for 2021? Well, on... Expectations, we, on the negative side, we are seeing a, a range of, of, uh, the, of the region's economies uh, sometimes blocking or banning um, brand name companies, apps, um, sometimes communicating with the companies, but often with, with little to no warning, um, while at the same time, because of COVID, uh, decimating so much of the offline analog um, um, outlets or channels for entertainment, relaxation, and whatnot. Um, I think that there's a re it, it, those are compelling reasons why we're seeing, I think, and we'll see a lot more of, a lot of tech companies are kind of on a shopping spree, um, hiring more and more um, government relations folks um, in, in the Gulf. Um, and I'd say bigger picture in terms of this year, 
we're going to see more of this kind of push-pull um, economy of kind of on again, off again um, economy with that, that is kind of responding to the, the COVID crisis where you have um, pressure to close things down when fatalities rise. And then the more people stay at home, there's economic pressure to open things um, back up again. And you're seeing that pendulum shift back and forth a bit um, in, in Israel, but also in um, a number of, uh, of Arab countries as well. Um, people are ultimately going to go back to work in the Gulf. Ideas still need a, um, to a, a chance to flirt and fight with each other. Um, and that, a lot of that happens, I think, only in person. So I hope you enjoyed opening day. Thank you, Sam. I did. And I learned a lot from this conversation, as I always do when talking with you. And thank you uh, for taking the time today and sharing your experience, your analysis, your your insights with our listeners on, on the Middle East. It was a real pleasure. We will return after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnists reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. I learned a lot from our conversation today with Sam Blattis, especially about the Gulf's commitment to the knowledge economy, how the promise of the digital economy and the high-tech sector may actually have grown during the COVID-19 pandemic, and about the centrality of personal relationships and to being there in high-tech and all business when dealing in the Gulf and the Middle East. Thanks to our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And to all of you for listening today. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.